How can we trust God when our gifting is hard to live out? Learn more on this episode where we discuss how, like Asher Lev, we can grow in empathy and fidelity to tradition and community, as well as to our gifting and calling. Welcome to Fiction That Forms Us, stories that inspire us and practices that help us change. A podcast where we explore life-changing stories with characters whose journeys give us a vision for a better way of life. Through God's invitation and grace to practice spiritual disciplines, we can journey toward becoming fully human like Jesus as we live in the kingdom of God in the here and now. I am your host, Christy Lahoda, and today we'll be continuing our discussion on the character Asher Lev in the book, My Name is Asher Lev by Haim Potok. In the last episode, we learned that though Asher's artistic ability put him at odds with his community, he stayed true to both. Today, we will continue our talk about how growing in empathy, fidelity, and love, as Asher did, can help us become more like Jesus as we continually seek out, wait on, and trust God to guide and shape us as we use our God-given gifts, even when it's not comfortable for us or our community. I'm joined again by my new friend, Amy Beck-Lee, a member artist of the Anselm Society Arts Guild, a founding member of the Cultivating Project, and a contributing writer at The Rabbit Room. Okay, well, let's switch gears and talk about what spiritual practices do you think that we can do in order to be transformed similarly to Asher in, you know, empathy, fidelity, love, so that we can become more like our master of the universe, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I've been talking about something specific to vocations. So I guess along that vein first, I think it's important to let God guide us through the making of art. I'm talking about art specifically, but it could be anything. Oh, like just to go back real quick to one of my favorite quotes, if you wouldn't mind me mentioning. I think some of the best quotes in this book are really given to the Rebbe. Mm-hmm. And so he at some point says to Asher, a life should be lived for the sake of heaven. One man is not better than another because he is a doctor while the other is a shoemaker. One man is not better than another because he is a lawyer while the other is a painter. A life is measured by how it is lived for the sake of heaven. And I think that's really starting to point to the trajectory of where Asher ends up. Um, but that really reminded me of what C.S. Lewis says in Learning in Wartime in his piece. He says, the work of a Beethoven and the work of a charwoman become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies. A mole must dig to the glory of God and a cock must crow. We are members of one body, but differentiated members, each with his own vocation. A man's upbringing, his talents, his circumstances are usually a tolerable index of his vocation. So I would say when we're talking about spiritual practices and we're talking specifically about vocations, you have to keep the bedrock laid. You have to be steeped in, we're talking about tradition. Even if you were talking about trying to become a good Christian writer or a good Christian musician, that begins with being a Christian steeped in the tradition of your faith of knowing scripture, of knowing prayer, of knowing the word of the spirit and how it comes. And, and oftentimes, I think, especially these days, knowing, knowing church history, knowing the struggles and the debates that have come before you so that everything that you face doesn't feel completely novel. But maybe this is a particular word for our times, but I think it's also important for us not to start out with a message that you think you know, hmm. so that 
your career is not going to be this platform upon which you keep repeating the same message that you've figured out and you're just reiterating. I mean, I think there is some truth to what Eugene Peterson's son said about his father having essentially written one book his entire life. Like, that is true. But he didn't get there by saying, this is what I want to talk about. And this is all I'm going to do from now on. It was a continual discovery. It was a continual willingness to sit and study and be instructed by God, essentially, I think. And I think that's what will happen in our faith. We have to keep looking to him. Hmm. And Maybe that sounds too elementary, but then there are many ways to do that. But I think that has to be our main stance to be waiting on the Lord. And I think that is the kind of focus that will drive us to doing the best work that we can. So you mentioned earlier that quote where Asher says it would have made it more and more difficult had he not gone on and painted that second painting. It Mm -hmm. would have made it more and more difficult to draw upon that additional aching surge of effort that is always the difference between integrity and deceit in a creative work. And that quote kills me because I know exactly what that feels like to look at a piece and to think the intended audience would take this and they would think it was fine. I am probably the only one that can see it's not yet saying all that it should. Hmm. And it isn't. And usually for me, that means not going into the depths of the story that it has to go into. And I think that's also part of the struggle of anybody who is writing or doing anything that will serve people that you can't see. (laughs) But Caitlin Beatty talks about this, I think, in Celebrities for Jesus. There are a couple of times where she says, there are some things that happen in your life that are meant to be holy, and they are meant to be held in the private sphere. They are meant to be part of your development and they are set apart to be not proclaimed. And you work out of that, like what you do should should respect that. And I think that's maybe a, a challenge that we're coming upon in our age when everything, it feels like either everything is public or you just leave altogether. Um, but I think that's a constant sifting that has to go on and it should go on. But there also needs to be an acknowledgement that that is an ongoing process. So in terms of spiritual practices that keep our empathy and our fidelity to the work that he has given us to do alive, yeah, I think there is that main heartbeat of keeping your personal spiritual practices and disciplines going and also constantly bringing things back to him for review. Mm. I don't think I'll ever cease to be humbled by the fact that I may have to make an identical decision as a different writer. But what is right for them in that season is completely wrong for me because of where my heart is or the issues that he wants me to work through. So that goes back to the waiting, right, that you mentioned. We need to practice waiting on God. And I mean, I don't know how much we have to practice it because God's time is not our time, right? So Mm -hmm. we are often handed, whether we want it or not, the process of waiting. But I think Mm -hmm. maybe it's uh, learning how to wait well or, or with joy. Yes. Do you have any advice for that? (laughs) Honestly, I think God keeps inviting me to revisit Waiting Patiently. And I think especially with getting my first novel published. And as an aside, I can really identify with you with not being at a place where you want to or are able to write as deeply as your book is calling you to. I do remember I was told by my editor that I'd hired to go over my my novel that I'd written. We need to see deeper point of view into the main character. And I said, well, I can't go too deep because everyone will hate her because you need to have a 
a likable character in order to get the readers to read it. And so I had to find a good balance with what I knew was true to be because I write about um, my main character battled anorexia Mm -hmm. and what I know to be true about that. And I I look back and think, well, I really wasn't that likable in many ways. So being true to that, but maybe not being fully to the extent of what the character would have been dealing with because then it really wouldn't have been enjoyable, but I needed to still be true to it. So there was a balance, but I... Wow. I think that to go back to my original point, God has definitely keeps having me revisit my ability to wait. And what he has brought me to the knowledge of is just complete surrender. And it's Mm. not a one-time thing for me. It's kind of like forgiveness with some people. Like I keep having to revisit that and revisit it and revisit it and keep releasing and surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's something that I will hopefully be able to do more and more easily as I continue to mature, hopefully with age, but in my walk with Jesus. But it's something that, you know, I'll be called to surrender until till I'm home with him. Oh, I've been nodding so emphatically because I feel like that's been the, maybe not necessarily in relation to periods of waiting, but surrender has definitely been the lesson of my past year too. And I totally agree with you that it's not a one-time thing, that it's something that he keeps bringing you back to it. And hopefully I, I feel like those muscles are getting a little bit stronger, you know, and I'm more willing and able to not do the clench (laughs) before the relinquishment. Mm. And just to augment what we were saying before about spiritual practices and how to encourage these things that we see in Asher in ourselves. um, One thing that, you know, we're talking about him being an observant Jew through the book. For him, it means keeping kosher. Like he doesn't take part in, you know, the refreshments at the art gallery. Even, you know, if nothing is offered, he won't eat. Um, No, I was sad that... I was sad that it it was his showing, right? It was his show and they wouldn't even have kosher food. Yes. Uh, Because it's so foreign to them, you know, like Khan keeps emphasizing, like there is no observant Jew who has ever been a great artist, you know? Well, and then Um, they don't, well, there are some that go see him, but Mm-hmm. But as a whole, the community doesn't go to the shows. So there isn't right. as much need for kosher food. But Right. Yeah. So there's no language for food. That's a good point. Um, and then you mentioned Europe when he goes to Europe. He also, uh, his father gives him a list of places where he can eat. And that's not imposing it. He's, Asher is going to stick to that. Yeah. And Asher was actually grateful for that. Yes. Yeah. And he keeps going to synagogue and he does his prayers. And there are some things that he, he lets, you know, he's he gives himself a little bit more leeway on in terms of propriety. Like he'll he says he strips to the waist when he does sculpting or painting at um, at Jacob Kahn's studio when he's not when nobody's around and that kind of thing. But oh, and it's so heartbreaking at the end, some of the fallout, because Part of why I think Asher keeps that lifeline alive is it's a lifeline to his community. Mm. It's a lifeline to, it's not just a lifestyle, but his, this is his family. Like the whole community is his family. He listens to the Rebbe when he gives that advice. And I do think if that doesn't qualify as an official spiritual practice, then it ought to be made one that <laughs> we need to keep in touch with the communities that help us to continue in that growth toward Christ and help us to continue in holding fidelity to the truths that we hold 
um, to the truths of scripture, all of that. Uh, I, I can't emphasize it enough. If you fall out of contact and you find yourself unmoored, uh, it takes life out of your work. It takes life out of you. You are not who you are meant to be alone. You are meant to be part of a body. And I feel like that bears repeating over and over again, especially for introverts like me, especially for artists who maybe have been hurt at times by the church. It's still worth in every sense being a part of that community. Mm. And being in, yeah, being connected to other people's lives and having them matter to you and you matter to them, even if you don't see eye to eye on everything. Mm -hmm. I think Asher depicts that really well. I think that anything can be a spiritual practice. Um, you know, there are classic, classical spiritual d disciplines, but I think anything could be a spiritual practice, Christian spiritual practice. I think it goes back to intent and, you know, what what you're doing it for. But Amy, what would you say to someone who is maybe feels like they're alone in their arts or, you know, whatever vocation they have and they just can't connect a community? Because I think it's such a good point and it's a, it's a point that I hear time and time again. And there are times when I struggle with community that can be really hard because it's, it's very isolating. I think what I would say is probably what I would say to anybody who is in search of any kind of community at all, whether it's in relation to art or not. And it's not a formulaic answer, which I apologize for. I think there is nothing to be lost in asking the Lord to bring those people and then to keep watch. And I say that because there was something really wonderful that I want to say it was the director of The Sound of Music said, I think it was Robert Wise, <laughs> who was talking to people who were asking his advice on what advice do you have for young aspiring actors or singers? Like what, what should they do to get ready to enter their fields, what would you advise them to do? And he said, don't move. Don't move to the big cities. Don't pack up everything that you have, let go of everything that you care about and, you know, embark on this journey. He says, start where you are. Start in your community. Do the small things. Like, get involved in a local theater. Get involved in a local choir. If you don't know if you have talent or not, somewhere there on that level, somebody will tell you, and it's in nurturing what you have, where you are, that you will come to find, I guess, what you are fitted for, but you will also find the opportunities that you need. And I feel like friendship is also that way. Like I'm talking about books coming from unexpected genres, right, to surprise us and, and enrich our lives. But I feel like people are that way, too, so that it may not be that you stumble into a book club of your people or and sometimes we're lucky enough to have the funds to fly to a conference where we find people who have read the same things and who love the same things and who are generating lots of music and art and whatever it may be out of it. I don't know. It Maybe it's different for somebody else when you're in a different professional arena, but I'm sticking with what I know from my descriptions. Sometimes we're lucky enough to have that. But the experience that I've had moving to different places and asking God for a friend, sometimes it's just a friend, like one will do, um, has been that they come in unexpected places and they come humbly. They come being themselves. So even the I'm lucky enough to have a local community that believes in faith and art, who believes in nurturing artists and reconnecting them to the church. But I found them because I showed up at a choral sing-in with a friend at a local church and I stayed behind to help put the tears away. Those are, I think, the the means through which he answers us. Mm -hmm. He may bring one person who has read a book that has meant 
much to you or a song that makes you cry or a movie that really strikes, you know, at your oh feelings. I wish we had had time to talk about Asher Levin feelings, but I think he is capable of surprising us at any time in any place in that way. So I guess my answer would be to ask him and then ask him to help you see it when it shows up. And waiting. More waiting. Yes. And waiting. <laughs> watching. The There's fortitude. something important about watching and yes. being observant. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, last question. How have these practices played out in your life? Mm. I think for me, so now I get to talk about the specifics of writing, maybe. Writing, I think, has been learning to wait on the Lord <laughs> as I've gone about the work of struggling with words in the little ways that I get to do. Those practices, that period of waiting, um, I think it's taught me to look at the world in a different way. So, it, you know, it goes both ways. The your worldview feeds into what you communicate in your writing and what you communicate in your writing also shapes the way that you see the next um, story happening before your eyes. So I guess in a microcosmic story. So earlier this week, I had I met a stranger who said something hurtful at a grocery store and I got in my car and I felt all the range of emotions. Um, but I found on the way home that I was actually drafting a description of it to myself on the way home and having to narrate the event with the awareness of God, having to narrate the event in the way that I'm accustomed to doing with the particular audience that I'm doing, because it just changed the posture of my heart, I think, towards that person and made me realize, like we've been discussing, that I don't know the details of her background. Hmm. And it may very well be that she completely outstrips me in some areas of faith or bravery or compassion that I don't know about. So that has been a continual surprise for me that to wait upon him and to exercise asking for his help in the practice of writing has taught me to also wait for his help in the everyday business of living. Hmm. And another way would be watching how he asks me to dig deeper. So we talked about that extra push of effort that takes something from being deceitful and incomplete to complete. There's actually a little card on my desk that says, go one step further that I've had for a few years. And uh, it I'm talking about going one step further, not in terms of shock and awe, but I know that I am apt to stop where it is comfortable, where a pat answer might suffice. And that phrase makes me pause because when I am in need of the kind of counselor art that meets me, that ministers to me, especially in those times when I need to see how beauty and brokenness can coexist, I need the people who have gone one step further. And I need them to show me how beauty and brokenness can both be tools of mercy in the hands of a God who is perfect love. I guess what I see Asher doing to cultivate empathy and fidelity and connection to community, um, those are some of the ways that it has helped me. And, and having conversations like these, being grateful for them and keeping a watch for wherever they might take place. I think I really do think he is at work orchestrating all of those. So I'm really grateful for those. I wanted to mention this and hadn't until now, but what you said about beauty and brokenness coexisting, I was wondering about Asher and his mom kept saying as he was, when he was little, paint something beautiful or draw something beautiful. He was working with crowns for a mm -hmm. couple of years. And at one point in time, because of his trauma, he, he had said, it's not beautiful, but it's true. I think mm -hmm. is what he said. And then the whole community, well, Khan and the Rebbe, and they were all saying, you're entering into the world of the other side when you're 
you know, entering the artist's world. Do you think that he could have really, and maybe this would have been better received by his community, but focused on not just painting something beautiful, but like painting the truth, but also painting it in such a way to see the joy because my particular Enneagram number, I get so stuck sometimes on what is wrong in the world and what's broken. And sometimes it's just hard to get out of that. And so for me as a spiritual practice, I have to find the good in things and the beauty in things and the hope in things. Do you think he did that? That's such a good question. Because I feel like then maybe they would have seen it as from the side of the master of the universe without Mm -hmm. painting just, you know, oh, like a pretty picture in quotes, you know, but Mm -hmm. like turning the bad into something good, kind of like, like we know that God does. God, you know, even with anything broken, I mean, he redeems it. It's not exactly the way it would have been, you know, I mean, people still die, but he can always turn something into some sort of good that didn't exist Mm -hmm. before because of that brokenness. And I just wonder about that with the art that Asher was doing. I wonder if I I agree with you. Where I empathize with Asher is I feel like there is a an area in Christian writing currently where I am unable to go. Um, And that's not to say that it's an invalid area of art. Um, I'm I just personally do do not feel like I am equipped to participate in it, which is the um, naming of certain sorrows or griefs or injustices that really goes in depth. Hmm. So in that vein, there are certain pieces I think that can be written where to end on a note of hope would almost feel like a cop out Hmm. because it doesn't feel like a proper acknowledgement of the depth of that grief. But I find that for me personally, um, and this is after years of trying, (laughs) I need to have that note of hope sound somewhere in the work beginning, middle, and it doesn't really matter as long as that is the enduring note that stays after the piece. And so that's what I see when Asher enters the world of Jacob Kahn and his colleagues and the world that the art world respects. And I see that very much in contemporary writing today, that if you're going to talk about something meaningful and it's full of pain, then you've got to let it just stay full of pain. And the meaning that you draw from it is that you survived or that, you know, there's usually not an upsuite of, of optimism societally, and that's fine, um, because I, I don't have a very high opinion of, <laughs> of um, society bringing us salvation at all. <laughs> but I'm saying that because I think where Asher ends up is almost a, a third culture of sorts. So he's got his orthodox community. There are bounds to what they feel and what they allow themselves to feel. Then there's the art world and there are bounds to what they feel and what they allow themselves to feel. And then he is trying to draw something from both of them that have made up who he is. But it's not like a it's not like a Venn diagram of those two cultures. He's not expressing what happens at that intersection. He's almost making like a third thing. A third way. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what he's saying in the book is that he was given no there was no outlet that he could see to do that. Um, and even so, even the expression of anguish, you know, never mind hope, like he's starting to, he's just needing to start with the anguish. Even for anguish, there was no form that he was given to be able to express the, the fullness of that anguish. Um, 
but I think there is a bit of hope at the end where he, where he's, you know, imagining his ancestor talking to him. His ancestor says, make your own forms. Mm. And perhaps that's what he's starting to do. Um, I don't know. I guess I'll have to go and be re- refreshed in the sequel to see what he goes on to do in his work. But um, I think there's some hope there. And I think maybe there's not hope in the way that I am accustomed to think of hope. We're g- definitely given a very dark background for him. Like he's almost saddled with the weight of his predecessors and ancestors before he even enters into the story Mm -hmm. and then what happens after that is all it seems almost all dark you know like his mother has a breakdown and then he is doing this thing that he doesn't want to do but finds himself doing and has a breakdown if he can't do it um so yeah maybe it's not hope in the in the it's almost like hearing music you know i think it's how we hear a lot of minor chords in a lot of minority cultures, especially if that culture is dotted with a history of having been conquered or, you know, um, abused by other cultures. You hear the minor chords, but when you listen to it long enough, there is a certain narrative and a beauty flowing through it that tells its own story. Mm. Maybe that is the, the nature of the hope that is flowing through this story for Asher. Wow. That's a really beautiful point. Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on. And maybe will you come back and we can talk about Anne, um, Ellen Montgomery's oh, I would Anne, love that. because I know we both yeah. love her. Yeah, that would be a completely different conversation, yes. I feel. But <laughs> it would be. Yes, I would love to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you. the conversation. Thanks again to Amy Beck Lee for giving us insight on how the character Asher Love from the novel My Name is Asher Love shows us how to love those who disagree with us and grow in empathy while remaining faithful to our calling, even when it means pushing the boundaries of comfort. You can find a link to Amy's website and articles on this episode's page on our website. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fiction That Forms Us. To read articles, learn more about this episode's guest, as well as what we've discussed, visit fictionthatformsus.com. Connect with us on social media through Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to those also on our website. This podcast was produced by Rob Lahoda. Our theme music is All Flame from the Carolyn Ahrens album Recognition. Learn more at carolynahrens.com. May God grace us with more of his presence as we learn to fully live in the kingdom of God by aligning our will with God's will. Until next time, omnia corda inflamate, set every heart on fire.